The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared. After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union Army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream the library online. Learn more at gettysburgcollection.com. gentlemen and welcome to Battlefield, Pennsylvania. Today we're on location at the Boast Building in Homestead, Allegheny County. In 1877, America experienced a multi-state railway strike. Violence occurred in Philadelphia, Scranton, and Reading, but nowhere was the violence more pronounced than here in Pittsburgh. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss the great railway strikes of 1877 are Charlie McAllister, retired professor of history at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, and author Ken Kobus. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Good to be here. Uh, Charlie, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I have a very strange background, but I, uh, uh, I got a PhD in philosophy at Louvain in Belgium. I went as a junior year abroad. I could load trucks in Rochester, New York, and go to school in Europe very cheaply. So that's what I did in the 60s. And then uh, came to Pittsburgh in 73, had five children here. I decided to go a blue-collar route. I worked uh, uh, carpentry, did a lot of different types of work, but I ended up as a machinist. I got training in South Vocational, and then I uh, worked at several job shops for a couple of years, and then I got into the big leagues, which was Union Switch and Signal. And I worked there seven and a half years and uh, was elected chief steward of the union after a bitter uh, uh, six-month strike. And uh, then was illegally terminated, uh, which gave me the down payment on my house. Uh, and, uh, and at any rate, then uh, went up to IUP, got a job at IUP teaching industrial labor relations. Ken? Well, I started out in the steel industry. I started as a laborer in 1966 at Jones and Lockman Steel uh, Company uh, in Pittsburgh Works. And uh, while I was working on the union side, I started uh, going to night school and I earned a degree in mechanical engineering from the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, I worked at the Pittsburgh Works until its uh, closure in 1998, at which time they shipped me to Chicago as manager of the Coke making operation there. And uh, when the company went bankrupt, and I came back to Pittsburgh, I worked for U.S. Steel at the Clareton Coke Works until my retirement. And you've written some books. Yes, I've written five books, uh, co-authored anyway, and authored one, City of Steel, How Pittsburgh Became the World's Steelmaking Capital During the Carnegie Era. So it's just the era we're talking about during which this uh, uh, railroad strike occurred. 
Uh, after the American Civil War, you start to see America really change. Railway is a big part of that. How did the railroads change this country? Well, uh, railroads, uh, you know, it started in Pittsburgh. Uh, the Pennsylvania Railroad started in Pittsburgh from 1846. Uh, they were ever expanding. The Pennsylvania Railroad was becoming, and, and possibly at that time, was even the largest corporation in America. So it was one of the most important corporations in America. It guided the way America uh, did business. Um, it was a pretty po uh, powerful organization. And, uh, you know, Pittsburgh was very important to that because Pittsburgh had become a steelmaking center, not as a mass-produced steelmaking center, but for uh, the, uh, for crucible steelmaking and uh, puddling, which is wrought iron, making of wrought iron. iron. And, uh, and just in 1875, at uh, Braddock, Carnegie got into mass-produced steel making at the Edgar Thompson Works, which was named for the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Now, I think this really, uh, people always say he did that to try to get uh, orders for rails, but the fact of the matter is, Edgar Thompson was Carnegie's boss at one time when he worked for the Pennsylvania Railroad, and he was his friend. And Edgar Thompson was dead. He died before the, the plant ever started making steel, so it was impossible for him to, to winnow orders for rails from uh, uh, the Pennsylvania Railroad on the basis of that. As a matter of fact, the, the successor to uh, uh, Edgar Thompson was a man named Tom Scott, and Thomas Scott is the man who taught Carnegie how to invest in stocks, and, is, and he gave him the money to invest. Carnegie paid it back on dividends, not by... And Carnegie and uh, Tom Scott had gotten into a row on something due to the uh, uh, panic of 1873, uh, and Carnegie uh, left... Uh, Scott unsupported for many reasons in the Texas and Pacific Railroad affair and, and, and Scott went near bankrupt and so the friendship ended. So if he was going to name the, the company after uh, to try and get orders for rails from the Pennsylvania Railroad, it should have been named the Thomas Scott plant, not the Edgar Thompson plant. So that's, that's a total fallacy. Well, uh, I mean, this was a period, the prior period, up until the beginning of the Depression. This was the second worst depression in American history. It begins 1873, runs 78 or so. Uh, and it, uh, it really was a slowing down of an incredible burst of railroad building all over the country that really went all the way to the, to the transcontinental, but went unbelievable numbers of small lines, which really, totally transformed the nature of the economy, made it into a single market where suddenly grain from the Midwest could really wiped out a lot of grain farmers in western Pennsylvania because you just couldn't compete with the size and the efficiency of those firms. There was a lot of economic upheaval in the coal and steel. The railroads were given a lot of uh, ownership of lands and, uh, and were able by making uh, short lines to uh, mines of uh, ore and uh, coal, able to get 
often controlling interests and many other uh, things. So the railroads are really the keystone of economic growth after the Civil War. And George Westinghouse's invention of the air brake, uh, and then because they got trains going a lot faster and a lot longer because of the invention of the air brake, they needed switches and signals, and that's why that all grew up. And out of switch and signal, and a department of switch and signal came alternating current and Westinghouse electric. But the air brake was very, very important right during the time of the strike, uh, because here you are in the middle of a depression, and the Pennsylvania was at the cutting edge of putting air brakes onto their uh, trains. That meant they could make them longer and uh, run them faster. And, uh, but it also meant in the middle of an economic depression where unemployment certainly in the working class areas around the rail yards were 30 to 40% at the time, you were talking about a lot of people getting laid off, fear of losing jobs, brakemen obviously. At one time it was all hand braking, which was incredibly dangerous. And so thank God to Westinghouse for uh, making it a much safer thing. But it also had an impact in the middle of a very deep and difficult depression of cutting a lot of jobs. So there was a lot of anxiety out there. We often hear about America's industrial revolution as an age of prosperity for people like Carnegie and Frick. Uh, tell us about the depression though. This was not any small affair. No, in 1873, it was, uh, again, it was uh, Jay Cook and Company, a Philadelphia uh, bank, um, got in some financial problems with overvalued railroad uh, property stocks. A and uh, they could not uh, back, they, they had a call on, their, on the, their money and they didn't have enough reserves, so they, they went uh, a belly up and they took a number of other Philadelphia banks with it, which sort of uh, uh, had effect on it, that such an effect that they had to close the uh, stock exchange for the first time in New York uh, some of the, for about three days or some, something like that. And so uh, this failure, Jay Cook had a broad impact across the nation and uh, part of uh, the impact was on the Pennsylvania Railroad and other railroads, which in 18, in 1877, 1873, excuse me, uh, declared a 10% reduction in wages across the board uh, for the entire company, and uh, except for people that had earned a dollar a day or less, and they didn't get their wages reduced. So, that they, if you look at it from a management point of view, that's fair. But 10% of a, the president's wages versus 10% of somebody that's earning two dollars a day is a big difference. So it had a big impact at the bottom, even though they believed it was fair. However, in, in 1877, the, uh, the, the panic of 1873 was still rolling on. And so the Pennsylvania Railroad and others, the New York Central and the B&O, at minimum, uh, also declared another wage reduction. And the Pennsylvania Railroad's wage reduction was, again, 10% across the board with the same dollar uh, limit. So it had a, another big impact on, on the workers. And the Pennsylvania Railroad wasn't very well liked in Pittsburgh for a number of reasons, and for good reasons. Uh, they, uh, you could ship goods from Philadelphia to Chicago cheaper than you could from Pittsburgh to Chicago because that favored the Philadelphia market. 
And so from the lowliest laborer all the way to the biggest uh, uh, owner of a business uh, uniformly despised the Pennsylvania Railroad. And so there wasn't a lot of good feeling between the people of Pittsburgh and, and the railroad itself because they thought that this, if they could ship goods cheaper, uh, they could uh, sell more things abroad. And so it was hurting the Pittsburgh market. And the Pittsburgh market was the biggest market of, in the Pennsylvania Railroad. It was the biggest freight center on the entire railroad. So it was, there were many, many, many people that, that disliked the Pennsylvania Railroad itself. And they had the lock on the market in, in Pittsburgh. And they also had the lock on the legislature. I mean, there's the. I was shown one time when I was doing a grant work for the state, where the 51st senator sat in the Senate of Pennsylvania was the, where the Pennsylvania Railroad sat and determined railroad policy. And there was a long fight of other railroads to get into this very lucrative market here, and was fiercely resisted by the. The Pennsylvania. So there was a lot of hostility toward the Pennsylvania. There was uh, also in the background of all this stuff too was uh, the Red Scare. The very first, this is the first Red Scare. We had at least three major ones in our history, but this was the first one, and it had to do with the Paris Commune and uh, and a, a fear of a mass uprising. Which this too, and I see a lot of parallels with today in terms of. Uh, information technology and the, the radical change of the type of work that young people are facing in the future with this kind of radical change. This was something that made a universal market, made communications across long distances possible. So this strike spread very rapidly. Camden Yards, Martinsburg, Pittsburgh, and West, all the way to the West Coast. Uh, it was a national event of a type that hadn't been seen. Of course, we had a civil war, but this was something from below that seemed to have come from everywhere, come from nowhere. There wasn't any real strong leadership on the part of the unions. Uh, the fellow Robert Amon, what a fascinating character, young guy, uh, becomes the leader. Boss Amon, they call him. He runs the Pennsylvania Railroad for about five days or so. He was a young Northsider, father and insurance agent. He went to Oberlin for a semester, went out to, that was too tame for him, went out west look, uh, in the Dakota country, then went out panning for gold in California, was on a clipper ship, comes back at the age of 25 within, I don't know, I can't remember exactly, six months, he's running the, <laughs> he's the leader of the strike. He's a guy with a, pretty broad vision, and he has deep roots in the north side. So there's a very interesting split that happens here. On the north side, there's no violence. Boss Amon controls the north side and has the agreement of this council there that the railroad workers will run the yards. On the other side, though, the importation of the Philadelphia militia into the uh, mix and confrontation with the crowd uh, causes the violence on, on this side, but there was not really, the railroad union had virtually no control over the events as they occurred. Uh, who worked for the railroads? Well, Carnegie worked for the railroad. He was the division superintendent, of the, <laughs> the uh, Pittsburgh division superintendent for the Pennsylvania Railroad until the middle of the 1860s. Uh, he gave up that job uh, to a friend who he got a job early on when he got hired by the railroad, and uh, at Robert Pitcairn. And 
Pitcairn was the su superintendent of the division at the time. However, he was not in town. Uh, I'm sure it's like anything, there were a lot of, and there was a lot of low, lowly jobs and there was still probably a lot of nepotism. There was a lot of nepotism and uh, there was a lot of underhanded dealings, I'm sure, to get jobs if you could. If you had a friend like Carnegie, uh, that's how Pitcairn got his, his, uh, his move up. So, um, so just uh, general, there were all kind of managers, station managers, you know, there were people of upper class and lower class that are mingled together to do just the, to do a lot. There were a lot of accountants and, uh, and clerks, huge amounts of clerks, so that because you had to handle so much different material. So the Pennsylvania Railroad, as I said, became the biggest corporate. It had, one time it had about 200 and some thousand, it was later, employees. It was a huge corporation, big. And railroads were big. And uh, uh, you would have, I mean, from, from the worker point of view, you would have had a certain uh, hierarchy in the eth ethnic groups. I mean, certainly there were a lot of German craftsmen, machinists yes. working in, in the shops. I mean, the Altoona shops were the biggest shops in the country. Uh, and, uh, but you also had, Irish had traditionally uh, been the uh, railroad, uh, uh, setting the rails and putting the rails in, in the East at least, they were the dominant ethnic group, but the Italians came in, in, in this period were coming in also and working heavily along the track, but the Irish being a little bit ahead of them in time frame began to move into the, into the other, into the rail operating end of it, but your upper uh, levels, your locomotive engineers would have been largely English, Welsh, your mechanics would have been a lot of Germans and uh, folks like that, so it was a real, but you were sort of pushed in certain directions by your ethnic background. Uh, the, it, as far as the boss Ammon in the north side is concerned, though, that, that could happen because there, there was something very special about Pittsburgh. And it's the Pennsylvania Railroad ended in Pittsburgh. And what uh, Ammon was in control of and controlled was the Pittsburgh, Fort Wayne, and Chicago Railroad. And that was, Although it was the Pennsylvania Railroad, it was leased by the Pennsylvania Railroad for 999 years. And so, I mean, he could do that because it was a separate entity and not affect. Likewise, there was a, a third railroad and a fourth railroad, which we won't get into, the Panhandle. And so they started west. So the Pennsylvania Railroad ended at the station where all the ruckus occurred. And to go westward to Chicago or to St. Louis, you had to travel over a different railroad a stock corporation, but that was owned or controlled or leased or whatever by the Pennsylvania Railroad. And so they had different rules and they had different unions and different locals and everything like that. But the focus happened in, in Pittsburgh at the end of the railroad. And one of the more important things is, although the wage reductions occurred, they occurred in other railroads too, uh, but at Pittsburgh, there was a very special circumstance that had nothing to do with wages, per se, that happened. And that was something called double-heading. And when, when the trouble started, it started not because of the wage reduction, but because of some, this double-heading issue, which double-heading refers to them at Pittsburgh only, and this was very specific to Pittsburgh. Nowhere else on the railroad did this occur. 
or any other, well, on other railroads it may have occurred, but not to the extent. We're talking about the biggest railroad in the nation. They stitched two trains together. Trains were very, very short. So 17 cars on a freight train was, was about the longest you could handle, mainly due to the power required output of a locomotive. And so they would have 17 train cars. And what they demanded, though, was they, were, they started to stitch two trains together to make a 34-car train. And they still needed two locomotives, though. They put two locomotives on the head. So this sounds like it's a reasonable thing to do. However, in the rear of the train, there's something called a caboose. And the, in the caboose usually was a conductor, who was the boss of the train, by the way, not the engineer, and a fireman, I mean, a, a brakeman and a rear flagman. So if you put two trains together, you don't need two cabooses on the back because it doesn't put any power. So you could cut a caboose which means you could cut three men. So you could have the labor force in the back. Now, there were still brakemen along the trains, and they had done this in the past, not as a rule, but occasionally when they were short of something and they had to get a train out, especially coal trains, they would stitch these two trains together and do the same thing. And so to management's point of view, this is just a thing that we normally did. Well, what happened is that for July of that year, the, the railroad put out a general order, which means everybody had to follow this order. And this, that every freight train out of the Pittsburgh station, and you could only go east on the Pennsylvania Railroad, so it didn't include the railroads even where Boss Amon was, because the Pennsylvania Railroad wasn't over there. It was from the Pittsburgh station eastward. And Pittsburgh has some pretty high grades, and so they made this order to double head. And uh, they eliminated half of the workforce, on, as I said, on the rear end. So this was a, a, a double or triple uh, uh, dig into Pittsburgh. So they already didn't like the railroad. And now, specifically for Pittsburgh, they're going to cut the, uh, the workforce in half. And reduced their wages as well. And the trains didn't go very far at that day. These double-headed trains only went to, to Derry at 48 miles. Well, apparently somebody in the union, I guess this, is, this comes from underneath, that they were also saying, hey, the Pennsylvania Railroad is going to also double the uh, day. Instead of running just to Derry, the 48 miles that they were also going to make the run to Altoona, which is 116 miles. And so that would further increase, decrease the uh, workforce in half again. And so this was all specific to Pittsburgh. So these people were, were getting all riled up. And the strike started not because of wages, but because three men refused to take a double-headed train out of uh, the station at 28th Street. Now, it didn't apply to passenger trains, but only to freight trains. So from there, these men refused to go, and trains continued to come in, and more and more people got involved, and they tried, the, the management tried to uh, force men to take trains out by different ways, and uh, 
none of them, you know, the strike that began to be dangerous now because people started fighting and it deteriorated from there. So it was not really about wages. It was about it was so much about wages. I, I, yeah, I, I think that ignores the context because it started. It started in Martinsburg and Camden Yards on the B&O, and they, all the railroads had pretty much agreed and had done a three, three wage cuts. And when you got down to a dollar a day, dollar a day was basic labor wages for uh, a day's hard manual work. Brakemen before this were up about a hundred, about a dollar fifty a day. And so getting these successive wage cuts, we're putting them right down at the bottom of the, of the scale in terms of survival, really. Uh, and, uh, and also, the way they were paid was by the hours they were actually on the train. So when you had dead time and stuff, you weren't being paid for it. So there was a lot of variation in the way you made money. And so a lot of times, you were really getting squeezed here. So there was a lot of... Uh, anger out there. And then on top of this, this was during the Molly Maguires. This was during the uh, suppression by basically the Reading Railroad of the U first union, first union contracts in the anthracite. Uh, and the reaction to that was an, a number of violent incidents and uh, the existence or non-existence of the mythical or non-mythical Molly Maguires. Uh, and the hangings, the first hangings of the first group of 10, this is the largest, second largest mass hanging in American history, uh, took place in late June. The Irish on the railroads were already being squeezed on various levels, and they were very, very tied in to what was happening in the anthracite and the, and the Molly Maguires. So that was a very much of a context. There was a lot of anger out there. But when they, and they, they attempted, they sent a delegation to the company to tell what their demands were. Uh, they wanted the people who had been fired because of not going out on the train. They wanted their wages restored. And the, all the men who went to them were fired. So that was the trainmen's union at that point, uh, which is a very embryonic organization, doesn't really have like representations. It's an idea, not a uh, reality yet. But sweeps across the rail lines of the country, uh, which we see today. It's one thing happens, it triggers you know, events in others because people feel a certain momentum. The momentum started starting down in the B&O, came here and just swept across the country all the way to the West Coast. Can we talk about uh, what avenues for organization were available to railway workers? Uh, we think of unions today, did they have that sort of representation in the 1870s? Well, the locomotive, the engineers, were very powerful because they had a skill and a trade. Craft unions, that's the folks who, they, they, that was hard. You couldn't just throw somebody in that locomotive and have them run that. And they found that out by trying it. Uh, so you really needed a, a person there. The others were, you know, more, you could more quickly train, but uh, uh, there was a lot of solidarity among these people. A lot of them lived in the same communities, uh, you know, were parts of the same neighborhoods, right here especially, because all along that track down in Lawrenceville and, and uh, the Strip, this was immigrant, this was a lot of heavily Irish, certainly Germans, Italians, others, uh, and they were, many of them were dependent in one way or another on the railroad, unloading, loading, huge operations down there. Uh, which are only a memory anymore. I think that the trainmen's union was just about coming just about. Coming that, about that, was, yeah. uh, that was relatively new. But they had craft unions. Yes. The firemen, Eugene Dubbs was a f in the firemen's 
union and the locom but the locomotives were the ones the, the engineers were the powerful ones but i think a lot of lot of the other stuff that contributed to this though like when it started it was three men and quickly it became like 25 men and uh they still tried to run trains they tried but they they tried things that are reasonable and in town is it is that the Pitcairn wasn't here, but he sent uh, the man in charge of the town, I think it was Mr. Watt, he went to the city and he said, uh, you know, I need, I need some policemen up there. Uh, we're having a problem, and a, labor, a, a labor problem, and I need policemen to help control this. Well, the, the city said, uh, we, can't, we can't send you, and we laid off half of the police force because of the 1873 uh, panic. And so half of our police force is, is uh, gone. But we could, if you are willing to pay, if you're willing to pay for them, we could try to get policemen up there. Well, the, Mr. Watts said, yes, we'll, we'll pay for the policemen. Well, they found 10 policemen that weren't working that they could send up. But what, what happens is, is that the, the policemen come up and they say, hi, Joe, how you doing? And, and so, because this, this dislike of the railroad and because of the friendship, the policemen were useless in, in essence because they, they had, what are they going to do, arrest their brother? They're not going to do that. So this continued to expand because the police force was on the side of the strikers. And then the militia was and then, called out. Yeah, and then, then the sheriff tried to get a posse. They went to, Mr. Watt went to the sheriff, and the sheriff was on the side of the uh, although he came up, the, the mayor refused to come to, to say anything. And uh, so later, hours later, he got the sheriff to come up who tried to talk to the, to the strikers. And this is getting exponentially bigger. You know, we went from three to 20 to, to maybe 100 to, to 200. And they're trying to quell this, this, uh, uh, this stoppage. And, but they, you know, so they, they didn't do any good. And so he called the governor of the, the state who was uh, Hart Tramp, and he, uh, he was not in the state. So they asked for military help. And so they called out the Pittsburgh militia. And when the Pittsburgh militia sh showed up uh, a day later or so, again, the same thing. What am I going to do? I'm going to arrest my. I'm going to shoot my my brother-in-law or my cousin or whatever. So, and besides that, again, this uniform hate of the Pennsylvania Railroad, and 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 so it didn't work because the people of Pittsburgh were on side on the side of the people that were striking, and and that worked to a problem. However. They recognized this, the, the, the militia recognized this, and they called for people from Philadelphia. And the people, the, when the militia arrived from Philadelphia, they had no feelings for the people of Pittsburgh. And so they were willing to do what they were supposed to do. Well, in, in, in the intervening day, the, 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 the howling mob uh, controls the city, there was Virtually no destruction. There were they, they used to have tracks running down Liberty Avenue. People were riding locomotives down the tracks. It was a party time for about a day with very little uh, violence at all. But once that 
Philadelphia militia came in, formed up in the yard, and began to march out against, some people estimate as many as 10,000 people gathered in those yards, and began and with fixed bayonets, and pushed that crowd to the 28th Street crossing, where the tracks, which had been, I don't know, were very wide, uh, 10 tracks wide, right. 12 tracks wide, had to go down to four, and that was where the pinch point was, and as that crowd got pushed back into it, that's when the bayonets stuck some people, stones were thrown, and then a volley was uh, shot. There was no, nobody could say whether there had ever been an order thing, but obviously uh, there was blood from the bayonets and there was stones being thrown and the open uh, volley and about 20 were killed, including a woman and children. And uh, the, Pens the Pittsburgh militia was seen sitting up on what is today Polish Hill uh, a lot of them watching this uh, event, and uh, there's a, one of the accounts says they were seen removing their uniforms but not throwing away their guns. And they went after the Philadelphia militia and drove them back uh, into the roundhouse machine shops, and that's where it began the all night long. Uh, one of the things that added to this was the fact that uh, this got, had got, this started on a Thursday. And, and Friday went about, and Saturday came. And on Saturday, there, were a lot, there was a lot of industry in the Strip District, very a large amount of industry. And the habit was on Saturday to work a half a day. And so while all this commotion was unfurling, uh, they happened to let out the people early. And these are a lot of, had a lot of people that were union or had union feelings. And uh, they came down to observe, and they were there observing when, uh, you know, and also backing the, the... And hundreds of coal miners marched so, in to the yeah. town, too. So it was, there was as, as you said, there was at least 5,000 people there. So it went from 3 to 20, you know, as I said, it keeps on going up and up and up. And so when, when the, uh, the shooting started, and, you know, those problems came about, uh, you know, people went and actually broke in later in the evenings on Saturday, they broke into some gun shops and uh, they, they stole rifles and pistols and everything like that to fire back on the militia. And it, it started to, to really, really, really fall apart then. So we have railroad workers Yes. Coal miners. Yes. We have people leaving the strip district. Yes. Are we wrong to call this a railroad strike at this point, or is this more a general uprising? Well, it, it sounds it, like it was a general uprising. uprising, and you got to realize you're in the fifth year of a deep depression. There are a lot of hungry people. Uh, like I said, the Molly Maguires was the big story at that time, certainly in the Irish community, where they felt that the, the suppression of the rich uh, was, you know, in, intolerable, and people were hungry. There were many people hungry in the country. They called, uh, they, there was a great film made of, about this documentary called the, the Grand Army of Starvation. And there was hunger across the land. There was a fear of uh, tramps was, uh, because there were so many migrant workers, many of them who would hitch rides on rail cars to look for work in any state they could find it. But uh, that was a big, in the background was a great fear of, on one side, of unemployment and destitution, and on the other of revolution and on the business side, obviously we're very concerned about 
the Paris Commune and, and uh, the uh, potential for that kind of uh, uprisings and, and ideology to find root in the United States. So there was a good deal of panic on their side and taking a very hard line, I think, on the company side as well as on the worker side. There was a, a genuine, I think it was an uprising because it, it goes, it flashes across the country. Huge general strikes in St. Louis, anti-Chinese riots in San Francisco. Uh, I mean, it takes very many different forms as it moves across the country. Um, but it, it was a national upheaval really connected to a modern technological thing that united the country. Yeah. Also, something else that, that's sort of different. Right now, if you go down to the Strip District where this all occurred, you go down for a good time, generally. And so there, there's not a lot of business and industry down there right now. However, and when you speak about Pittsburgh as a steel center, you think of the Monongahela Valley. That's where all the big heavy industry is in Pittsburgh or was. And so that is where you think of. But the, the, the steel industry in Pittsburgh started in the area that we're talking about, the small industry, with puddling furnaces, with crucible steel making furnaces, with foundries. There were, there were multitudes of businesses that were based on steel making. As a matter of fact, Carnegie's first plant was at 29th Street. This, this happened at 28th Street, and Carnegie's plant left out at, you know, on Saturday. Both the, they called it at that time the upper and lower union mills. One was at 29th, the other was at 33rd, and Lucy Furnace, the first blast furnace that they opened, that uh, he owned, was at 51st. And so all of Carnegie's business and entry into the steel business was, came from this, this very area. So it was very intensely industrial, very intensely industrial. So when we talk about letting people out, we're talking about hordes in, of people. And so they're all coming out at the absolute wrong time. I mean, all of the, for this to happen, all of the stars and the planets and the moons and what everything else had to align in perfect order for this to, to happen, something of this, this size to occur over something that would normally be nothing, three people refusing a, a job. Could we talk about this notion of overseas events impacting uh, ideology here? This sounds more than like a red scare. This seems like it's becoming a reality. Could you talk about uh, how people perceived this at the time? Well, it, it, it was absolutely huge, and it, and it didn't end here. I mean, you have Eugene Debs, the American uh, uh, Railway Union. You have the Pullman strike that comes in the following decades. In the 1880s, the big, the big push is for the eight-hour day, and it's the, if there's any great achievement in the American labor movement, it is setting the eight-hour standard as the goal first and eventually the achievement in the 30s. But, um, but there is another dimension. I mean, there's, there's certainly this, this fear of revolution and of, of upheaval. But there's another factor here that is in, that in the election of 1877 and Ruther Fraud B. Hayes, uh, that, that there was a, a situation where three states were contested and a deal was made that the guy that got the most votes, Tilden got the most votes in the presidential uh, can, uh, election, uh, a deal was made right prior to the uh, inauguration, basically, that, uh, that they would throw 
the state of Florida to the Republican, and uh, Hayes won the presidency despite losing the popular vote. Now, we know that could never happen in modern days, but uh, it happened then. And the critical, there are two, several critical things that I think uh, it was mentioned about the railroad going, the Texas, the railroad going west uh, was part of the deal with the Southerners, were two things. One was to end Reconstruction, which they did, and troops came out of the south directly into Pittsburgh to occupy it, uh, after the railroad strike, uh, and Jim Crow and the white folks were allowed to do what they were going to do to the blacks in the South. So those two things are really uh, happen at the same time and provide real resonance here. And the other was they were going to give the Southerners a link to the West Coast through a Southern uh, rail, uh, Transcontinental Railway. That was the deal that got uh, Hayes the presidency. And so there, there was huge political background, as there was during the Homestead strike, had national implications. So we're about to see the worst of the destruction here in yes. Pittsburgh. Could you take us through that? Well, on the evening of the, of the uh, Saturday evening of the 21st, uh, the, uh, the militia was holed up in the roundhouses, one of the roundhouses. And uh, actually, the, the, some of the rioters had gotten a field piece, and they were attempting to fire on the, the Philadelphia militia. And so they had sharpshooters in there taking, making sure that they didn't use the field piece. But th then they began to set cars on fire and uh, roll them down. First, they set a coal car on fire. And, and since uh, this is a mountainous region, they you know, it rolled down by gravity. And they and that didn't work. And they, they had since this is also the oil an oil region, there were cars that had oil in it, and they tried to ignite those things. And they would roll these cars down by gravity across the 28th Street and towards the two, one of the two roundhouses. And eventually, the roundhouses had uh, got uh, caught fire, and the militia had to retreat. And and. By that time, the rail yard on all the goods, and they started looting all the cars and burning all the cars. And, and uh, they, most of the facilities for about two miles were, were completely burned out. 30, about, 39 buildings. Yeah, about 1,600, depending on what you talk, 1,400 cars, uh, 126 locomotives, all the rails, all the cars on top of it. Uh, were burning. So cars were made of wood in those days. It, they weren't steel. They were all made, in fact, made of wood. And so they were all burning and people were looting all the cars and opening the cars up. And so, so all the tracks became uh, bent and curved and couldn't be used. So the entire yard was uh, uh, left a ruin from about 7th Avenue around the bend from where the Pittsburgh Union Station was all the way up past 28th Street to about 33rd Street. It was all, all destroyed. All in all, about, some people say, as much as $5 million. Now, today, we would say that's nothing. But if you put it into today's money, you're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. And so now the railroad was going after it. It sort of dissipated just quietly on Sunday until about 5 o'clock, and then it seems like, you know, people stopped 
rioting and st people stopped well, they burning. Marched, they marched out of town. They went yeah. up first to the arsenal and tried to uh, get the federal uh, uh, people at the arsenal to take them in and protect them. And the guy said, I'm not letting open in that door. If they get, if that mob out there gets all these guns, we're not going to have a riot. We're going to have a revolution here. So they had to then march down and go to Sharpsburg, cross the river, and go. And they were under fire all the way to Sharpsburg. I went to Philadelphia and went through the uh, very arcane Philadelphia library system and read a lot of the accounts. And it's just lurid accounts of the Pittsburgh mobs, the low life. No wonder they hate us and we have uh, sports, yeah, sports. <laughs> yeah, contests. It's, it goes very deep. Nobody knows why, but it's all there. It's all, uh, it all happened. Uh, it's rooted in something very very real. Uh, so now the railroad wants retribution. They want, they want their railroad back. And so there was a problem. And now it was finding a uh, scapegoat on who, who we're going to charge with this and who was responsible. And so, you know, they went after the city and they want to try to go after the state. And there's a very thick uh, book by, by Rayburn about the committee that investigated the railroad riots in, in 1877. And eventually, the onus was put on Allegheny County, that they, they were responsible, they should have, they had the ultimate control, they had the ultimate responsibility. And so this, they had to float a, a bond uh, uh, sale to pay for all of the, the damages which were somewhat less than the five million dollars, but so the taxpayers of Allegheny County ended up paying uh, the the uh, the damages to replace the railroad. Now I, I think it goes even a little bit deeper than th that to show they they built it uh, since Pittsburgh was an important railroad town and there were a lot of passenger service in in Pittsburgh and on the Pennsylvania Railroad. They built a temporary station and the temporary station lasted for 25 years. Uh, so it's as sort a punishment. of as a punishment that people in Pittsburgh always I've heard stories about that is that that, that was the, the Pennsylvania Railroad's way of telling people in Pittsburgh, well, you got this little dingy station, which was a fair sized station, but you got this dingy station because you you burned the one that you the good one that you had down. And, and so that happened until the present station, the station that exists there now was built uh, in, the, in 1900 when they started building it. So it, it, the, the underlying problems still were kept around, you know, around the Pittsburgh area and, and, and they knew. And, and Carnegie actually knew early on because he, when he built the Edgar Thompson Works, he made sure in Braddock, he made sure that there were two railroads serving it because he worked for the Pennsylvania Railroad and he understood that if he builds a plant on the Pennsylvania Railroad and he had all his friends there, uh, that he, he was, they were going to hold him up for freight rates. And so he made sure that he located the Edgar Thompson Works where both, it was served by both the Baltimore and Ohio and the Pennsylvania Railroad. So there's, there's a good basis for that, even at Carnegie's level. And he was at one of the highest levels in, in, in the corporation. And, and there were real consequences which have an impact here on Homestead. One was that the, the militia, or the national, becomes the National Guard, really becomes a, a, a real force. 
people are no longer the way the militia worked. Was, it was your neighborhood. It was your. It was the people, veterans from that area were put in that that uh, battalion or whatever. That was completely broken up, so that statewide, it, uh, the national, the state guard or um, militia became integrated in a way that it was not at all before. You're not going to just have local people. And second of all, they got summer camp training, so they became much more professional soldiers. So you see in the Homestead strike, when they come in on the rail, they are a pretty disciplined group. There's some outbreaks of rebellion among the ranks, but they're not serious like the complete breakdown that happened here. Also, you look at the county uh, courthouse, and that medieval-looking torture chamber was built to impress people with the, the power of the law and the forcefulness of, and, uh, of it. And it was something that was replicated in, in those years immediately after around this state and uh, other places in the country. Very powerful expressions of, of law and order were uh, part of the, 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 the consequence of it. And there's uh, this, the character of Pittsburgh changes completely. The corporate people begin to see they were living out on the edges, and that we weren't paying a whole lot of attention to what was going on in the city among the masses. They become very concentrated on reform, on, on uh, building their a, a more efficient police force, on privatization of many things, like the beginning of professionalization of sports begins to happen because there was a huge working class sports tradition in Pittsburgh where people participated. It becomes more and more people are become consumers of a corporate world. And by 1900, the downtown area, the Golden Triangle, is pretty firmly in control of the corporate uh, class here where it hadn't been. It was a wild uh, town of speakeasies and whatever uh, in, the, in the old days, in the 70s. It was a wild town. And it, they really came in with a, a vision about corporatizing the Golden Triangle, and they succeeded. I think part of what you said, too, also contributes to, to the fact that Homestead could have a strike like it did, is because I think that the people learned that if you could get public opinion mm -hmm. on your side, yeah. you can carry over something on anybody. I mean, you, this, if you could do it to one of the biggest corporations in the, in the United States, then you could do it to anybody, if you could swing that. And I think that at Homestead, they knew that they could swing that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that had a lot to the, do with the, for the reason why it happened. I mean, there, there are a lot of, again, there's, there's reasons and then there are reasons. And so, you know, some, some have a bigger impact than others. And wages, again, looks like it's the, it's the thing. But I, I, my personal belief is wages were not the problem. It was the other things that, that happened. Uh, you might have right. a different opinion of well, that. Well, no, no, I don't. It, at Homestead, it wasn't primarily wages. It was uh, shop floor control and the exactly. and the role of the union in on the shop floor, which Frick was absolutely determined. He was not going to have a bunch of busybodies from the Amalgamated Association coming around and telling him what he should do. So that sliding scale that you hear is the reason for the Homestead strike, the change in the sliding scale, is not the reason. The reason was control. Right. And whoever won the Homestead strike was in control. Was there a national reaction after the 1877 strikes like we saw uh, after the Homestead strikes? 
Uh, yeah, there's, there, I, I think there was certainly a reaction. I mean, in the sense that the 1880s were really a, a, the great upsurge of labor, uh, and it took the form of the eight-hour-a-day struggle. But that's when May Day came about, Labor Day came about, both of which are American uh, born. Uh, May Day is the International Workers' Day, but it started in the United States. The same guy proposed Labor Day, proposed May, May Day. Uh, Peter J. McGuire of the Carpenters Union. And, uh, but the 1880s was a time of great labor upheaval and boycotting and striking and, uh, and trying to reduce the hours because that just keeps seemed to go. 14, 15 hours this was okay by the, the ruling people, not too good for the ordinary people. So the struggle for first the 10-hour day and breaking the 12-hour day and then the struggle for the 8-hour day takes us into the 30s. But the, that was the central thing. You, if you want to, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. That was the slogan of the 1880s. And it built off this incredible energy of this uh, upheaval of the railroad strike of 1877, which was a national phenomenon and gave labor a sense that it had real power. Well, strangely, you know, something that happened in 1878 at, at the Carnegie Steel Company of all places, is that uh, the superintendent at at at, uh, uh, at Edgar Thompson named Bill Jones, he he actually talked Carnegie into instituting the eight-hour day, the and so day. yes, and and so for about ten years, Carnegie Steel Company maintained an eight-hour workday, and and to Carnegie's credit. Uh, when, when they instituted the eight-hour day, they, uh, Carnegie agreed not to it, de lower the, the employees' wages. So they worked an eight-hour day for the same work money as they were getting paid for a 12-hour day. However, to Carnegie's detriment, when Carnegie eventually forced Bill Jones into sending the men back to the 12-hour day, he didn't, he, his logic seemed to be, well, if I didn't pay you, to uh, less to work eight hours, I'm not going to pay you more to go back to the 12 hours. So sometimes he could do that kind of thing. His thought processes were not quite the thought processes that you would, you would hope that he would have. But uh, it, it probably had some to do with what was going on. But Bill Jones was a wonderful man. He, he was. was just, I, I agree with that one. <laughs> he, he just was such a wonderful man. That, if we wanted to see some of the locations we talked about today, yes. uh, what, where would we go? Is there anything left? Not really, except for a few signs. It's all mostly parking lots and, right. and buildings that are just put up, you know, the office buildings that are just rectangular structures that have no, yeah. no architectural value to them whatsoever. And see, the Pittsburgh, the, at the station was very long and narrow. So from where the station was to beyond, just beyond 28th Street, you're talking about about two miles. And uh, so it, it was really shoehorned into a place where it shouldn't have been. It, already in 1877, they were having difficulty uh, with the Pennsylvania Railroad because freight was coming in from the west or going out, and it all funneled into this little narrow section, and it, it, there was just no room to do things. And so they were already trying to figure out ways to divert traffic around Pittsburgh 
and, and they were in the process of doing that already. So it, it's a very narrow area that was pretty useless. It was served as a passenger station, and we know passenger traffic fell apart just as they put $35 million into the station, upgrading the station to make it more efficient. People started going to airplanes. So it sat pretty much underused for decades and, and then and, finally. And that's a very, because I think there's a great symbolism in 1986, the day before election, 45,000 people, the largest march in Pittsburgh history happened with the building trades unions protesting non-union labor at that facility, at the Pennsylvania Railroad Station being turned into luxury apartments, was done non-union. And the word went out, they, the unions themselves thought they'd maybe get 7,000 people to come to a rally. Workplaces from Erie to, to Morgantown emptied out across state. I stood in the corner and watched 45,000 in their work clothes. They showed up at 7 a.m. in the morning and all in their work clothes, grandfather, father, son. Very often you could see them walking together and they marched into downtown. No violence, they didn't break a nothing. But 45,000 people occupied downtown Pittsburgh, marched the triangle uh, and shut the town down. It didn't make, make the news outside of Pittsburgh. It was suppressed, that story. But it is one of the most amazing uh, things I've ever seen in this town. And it was at about that building that uh, went up in 1900, uh, the Pennsylvania Railroad. So what le what's left now is about two tracks, yeah, except for a few stub end tracks at the Amtrak station, which is in uh, the, the, the base of, basement of that building. Uh, you go upstairs, and so there's a few passengers, really right. only two passenger trains, four a day, two yeah, one way and, and the, two the opposite direction. So that's all that's really left of it. It's an unimportant place, uh, and it's, you, you, couldn't, uh, you could never tell that anything as a historic as this occurred. Only the ghosts. Yes. <laughs> On that note, I'd like to thank my guests for joining us today. Remember to pick up a new copy of our guidebook, Battlefield, Pennsylvania, written by yours truly. It's available now. On behalf of everyone here at Battlefield, Pennsylvania, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. Mm -hmm.